Good morning. Let's pray. Father, it's a privilege again to be able to come into this place as a group of believers, of those who have been washed by the blood, and uh, worship you and sing to you and praise you and study your word and hear truths from your word, Father. Lord, I just asked this morning that uh, uh, as a very feeble and uh, weak uh, deliverer of the message, that you would keep me out of the way and that the things that I say would be only those things that you once said. Lord, I, I pray uh, for open ears and open hearts. And I pray for people to be diligent to uh, vet what I say against the Scripture. If there's any doubt in anyone's mind that what they're hearing is the truth, that they would examine the, the Word to determine. Lord, I really want to pray this morning uh, for churches in the, uh, the part of the world right now where uh, people who name the name of Christ are being imprisoned and being murdered because of their faith. Lord, we, we here in this country uh, know nothing of that yet, though we may. But Lord, I just want to lift them up because they are paying the ultimate price for their faith and for communicating their faith and communicating the gospel and for living in a manner worthy of the gospel. So Lord, I pray for your, your grace and your mercy on them. I pray for protection. And I pray that, uh, I pray for deliverance for those who are in prison and for those who are suffering, Lord. And I pray that your word would go out and uh, even stronger and that there would be many more who would hear and believe as a result of those who are suffering. Lord, be with us now as we open your word and consider everything that you have to say to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to be back in Philippians chapter 1 again today. Uh, this is part two of Preaching the Gospel, a Marvelous Obsession. Uh, so let's turn to chapter 1 of Philippians. We're going to read the whole thing just like we did last week. <clears throat> Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And we talked about what that meant last week. 
For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. <clears throat> Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your, your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So this morning, uh, we'll go back and talk a little bit about what we did last, last Sunday. We spent a good deal of time talking about the history of the city of Philippi and the beginnings of the church there. Recall that Philippi was a very Roman city with a significant number of its citizens being former Roman soldiers who had received houses and land there as a reward for their service in the Roman army. Philippi was like a miniature Rome. It had its own senate and legislature, and Roman citizenship was held in very high esteem there. The account of Paul's first visit to Philippi is found in chapter 16 of Acts. There, we know there was no Jewish synagogue there at the time of Paul's visit, which indicates a lack of tolerance of Judaism in Philippi. The highlights of Paul's visit, which resulted in the beginnings of the Philippian church, included the conversion of Lydia and her household, the beating and imprisonment of Paul and Silas, resulting from Paul casting a demon out of a slave girl, and the conversion of the jailer and his household as a result of the witness of Paul and Silas in the jail. Paul wrote his letter to the church at Philippi about 10 years after the events recorded in Acts 16. By then, the church was well established with elders and deacons and had provided financial support uh, <clears throat> to Paul on several occasions. It is evident from what we read in chapter 1 that Paul had great love and affection for this church. 
Now we're going to look at verses 12 through 18. Paul makes some rather extraordinary statements here that we're going to look at it one at a time. First, he says that what has happened to him has really served to advance the gospel. And that means he's talking about his imprisonment. The fact that he's in prison has served to advance the gospel. He says it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul actually views his imprisonment as a fortuitous event because the, the gospel is being advanced. This may sound strange to us, but to the people in Philippi, it would likely have brought back some fond memories. Remember how the imprisonment of Paul and Silas in Philippi led to the conversion of the jailer in his household. Maybe some of the prisoners that were with Paul and Silas also came to faith eventually. We don't know. But the text in Acts 16 says the prisoners were listening to Paul and Silas singing hymns and praying. And the first step in receiving the gospel in faith is hearing it. Paul mentions the whole imperial guard. Uh, this is rather an impressive thing. Uh, the Greek word here is praetorian. Uh, one writer states that he is referring to the whole body of persons connected with sitting in judgment, the supreme imperial court. Doubtless in this case, the prefect or both prefects of the praetorian guard representing the emperor in his capacity as the fountain of justice, together with the assessors and high officers of the court. Could anyone have thought or foreseen that these high-ranking Roman officials would actually come under the influence of Paul's life as he boldly proclaimed the gospel, even while under arrest in Rome? Jesus told his disciples that such things would happen. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to start reading in verse 16 where Jesus is talking to his disciples. Jesus is talking to his disciples about what they're going to face. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how, about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So what's happened to Paul here and the result of him being in prison is actually a fulfillment of this prophecy of Jesus to his disciples. Paul also says to all the rest, besides just the imperial uh, guard, uh, all the rest have also heard about the gospel. This includes other prisoners and various people who came and went. According to Philippians 4.22, there were even Christians in Caesar's household. And it's very likely that Caesar at this time was Nero. Uh, and we all know about Nero. Paul's presence in this prison in Rome meant that the gospel touched everyone who met him and who heard about him. The point that we can take away from this is that Paul did not let his circumstances dictate his commitment to spreading the gospel. Let's turn over to chapter 4 of Philippians and read verses 11 through 13 and see what Paul says about circumstances. So just turn a couple of pages over and you should be in chapter 4. Paul's talking about his physical need right here because uh, the church in Philippi had given Paul gifts, monetary gifts on several occasions to support him in his ministry. And he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says he's learned how to be brought low. He's learned how to be abased, and he's learned how to abound. And when he says abound, that means having more than enough. He says he's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's interesting that the uh, English Standard Version of the Bible translates this as facing plenty. In the Greek, the word means being instructed in. We normally think of facing a circumstance as referring to something that's difficult. We don't think it's strange if someone says they are facing poverty or facing hunger or facing serious illness. But we might think it's strange if someone says they are facing wealth or facing getting a raise in salary. But Paul knows that in the work of God's kingdom, having an abundance of material wealth is just as difficult a circumstance to face as abject poverty. Both can divert the child of God from a kingdom focus. But Paul said he learned the secret of facing both situations. And how did he do this? Through Christ who strengthened him. So how about us? Do we sometimes find ourselves in difficult seasons of life where we are so overcome by our circumstances that we lose the joy of our salvation and cease to share with others the hope we have in Christ? Or do we find ourselves so secure and comfortable in our possessions and abundance that we become caught up with many distractions and lose the vision of making disciples? Paul makes it clear that his ability to overcome his circumstances was learned. It was not something that just came automatically, and it was by the power of God. He goes on to say that his imprisonment has caused the brothers to become confident in the Lord and emboldened them to speak the word of God without fear. He said that some were preaching Christ out of goodwill, love, and sincerity because they knew Paul was in prison on account of the gospel. They became confident in the Lord. Paul, the champion of the gospel, was in prison, and these believers wanted to spread the word of Christ in his absence so the gospel would continue to go forward. Their desire to spread the gospel overshadowed any fear of their own imprisonment that might result. Here is a somewhat imperfect analogy to illustrate. When a star player of a team is injured, the other players often step up their performance level to make up for the star player's absence. They aren't thinking, if I play harder, I might get injured too, so I think I'll just drop it down a notch. Their goal is victory, so any thoughts of injury are overcome by the desire to win. Of course, the main problem with this analogy is that Paul was not on injured reserve. His passion for the gospel was having an impact in a place that no one might have ever thought it could go. And then there were others who preached Christ, but their motives were impure. They were envious of Paul and considered him a rival in preaching. They thought they were taking advantage of Paul's imprisonment to advance their own reputations and cause him grief. Paul's response is extraordinary. He says, only in every way whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I said, wait a minute, Paul. You really just say that? Are you really saying that the personal piety of the messenger doesn't matter? Well, he's not exactly saying that, as we'll see in a few minutes. What he is saying is that if the gospel is in fact being preached, its, its validity and its power to save sinners are not dependent on the integrity of the preacher. In Romans 1.16, Paul says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's God's power, not the preacher's power. I think we can all relate to this in our, in our day and time. How many 
great preachers have we seen fall in scandal and immoral behavior. Please note that these insincere brothers were not false teachers. They were accurately preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, Paul would have condemned them. There may be some of you here this morning that came to faith and were baptized under the teaching of someone who later left the ministry because of scandal or immoral behavior. Maybe you've wondered if your conversion or your baptism is even valid because of that. Maybe you've even been told by some well-meaning soul that you need to publicly reaffirm your confession and be rebaptized. Paul's statement should put your mind at ease in this regard. Now compare Paul's statement in Philippians 1.18 to his statement in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Turn to Galatians chapter 1 and we'll see what he says there. The Galatian church, the Galatians, actually Galatia was an area. And so this letter is probably a circuit letter that went to a number of churches in, in a geographical region. And they were having a real problem with people coming in and saying, okay, you can believe in Christ, that's fine, and everything, but you also have to obey the law, you have to be circumcised, you have to do certain things in order to to really be a Christian. And Paul, uh, here's what Paul says about that. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul had absolutely no patience. He had no tolerance for a distorted gospel, for something that took the true and pure gospel of Christ that as he said in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the things that were delivered, he delivered to, to them, the things of first importance, that Christ was crucified, he died, and he was buried for our sins, and that he was raised on the third day. That's, that's, the, that's the crux of the gospel, that our sins had to have a payment, and that payment had to be a holy and just and perfect payment. And that's all that saves us not any works of righteousness that we do ourselves. And Paul had no tolerance for a message that perverted that. So if the message is pure, but the messenger is tainted, it does not invalidate the message. On the other hand, if the message is tainted, it doesn't matter who the messenger is or how good he or she appears. Paul goes even so far as to include himself and those who should be accursed if they preach a different gospel. A lesson we should take from this is that it is incumbent on all of us to use God's word to evaluate what we hear taught and preached. Even if we know the preacher or teacher and have confidence that the person is firmly grounded in the word of God, if he or she says something that sounds unique or different regarding doctrine, we must thoroughly check it against scripture. We must beware, especially of what we see and hear from the mass media in this regard. There are some teachers and preachers in that realm that are firmly grounded and true to the Scriptures, but there are many who are not and who use Scripture references and a Christian vocabulary to teach heretical doctrines that make much of man and little of God and pervert the biblical truth that Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. 
These people can be very persuasive in their speech, and there's just enough truth in what they say to captivate you if you're not listening with a discerning ear. Paul reminded the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, that he did not use lofty speech or wisdom to proclaim the testimony of God to them, but he decided to know nothing among them but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Okay, now let's go back to Philippians 1, and let's look at verses 27 through 30. And I'll, I'll read those verses again since it's been a while since we, we looked at them. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Earlier we were talking about the integrity of the messenger and asked if this matters at all if the message is true. Here Paul tells the Philippian believers to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does he mean by this? Well, first of all, he doesn't mean that we are to live the gospel. That's a a phrase we hear thrown around a lot today. We need to live the gospel. But in fact, we can't live the gospel because the gospel is a message that we have to tell. What we can do is we can have a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel. And that's what Paul is talking about here. This word, manner of life, uh, comes from a Greek word that uh, is based in the word of, of citizenship to behave as a citizen. So Paul says, let your citizenship behavior or your citizen behavior be worthy of the gospel. Recall how important Roman citizenship and patriotism were in Philippi. By using this term, Paul emphasizes that Christians have a citizenship that far surpasses that of the Roman kingdom or of any other earthly kingdom. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom. Just as Roman citizens were to be loyal to Rome and and obedient to Caesar, Christians are to be loyal to Christ and obedient to Him, and not be an obstacle to the gospel by the way they live. Let's look at a couple of satellite passages that reinforce this. The first is just a page turn or so away in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. So let's look over there. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself." So, Paul says that these people, were, they are supposed to imitate Paul and those who walk according to the example that they have in him and his close companions in ministry. Imitation. Okay? What you see in us, these things you do. It may sound arrogant, but in fact it's not arrogant. Paul's giving them a model for how they are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says to do this as opposed to following the path of those who claim to be in the faith but are totally self-indulgent. And we have plenty of those around. 
uh, God help us that we would not be one of them. The second satellite passage is in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. So turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's talking about here in this passage, just a little preface, is uh, the fact that Jews and Gentiles now exist together in the church. And the hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles in that age is hard for us to understand in, in, our, in our day and time. But it was real and it was intense. And so Paul's talking to these Gentiles. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which would be the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So in appealing to these people, he says, you were once far off. Well, that's you and me. We were once far off. We're Gentiles. And we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're now members of the household of God. We're citizens with the saints. Colossians 3.11, Paul wrote to the, the, concerning the church. He said, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ breaks down barriers that we in our flesh want to erect, that we in our flesh live with all the time. Now going back to Philippians 1, uh, 27 through 30, or 27 and 28, I'm sorry. How's this played out? It's played out in our standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and that we are not frightened by our opponents. This is very much the imagery of Roman soldiers engaging in battle, fighting side by side. The people in Corinth and in Philippi would be very familiar with this. Roman soldiers fought side by side. They each had a plot of ground in front of them that they were responsible to defend and move forward in. They, they stood side by side and moved forward fearlessly engaging the enemy in a designated space and standing firm to hold that designated space. A soldier does not engage the enemy alone, but with other soldiers on either side of him and moving forward as one man. Despite the fact that the Philippian church was faithful in many ways and was loved dearly by Paul, 
it was not a perfect church. There were problems with disunity and discord among the members. Paul deals gently with them about this throughout the letter. He's not harsh with them at all, as he's doing here. He appeals to them to show brotherly love and to set aside their differences for the sake of the gospel. In chapter 2, the very first uh, part of chapter 2, Paul says this, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what does this mean for us today? Because we were once far off, but have been brought near by the blood of Christ, there's no room among the people of God for broken fellowship and discord over differences not directly related to the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. When it comes to issues of citizenship, our national citizenship should never trump our heavenly citizenship. I'm not originally from Texas, I'm an Okie, but when I first moved here, I was fascinated by all the bumper stickers I saw that read, Native Texan. Obviously, a lot of people are very proud of their Texas citizenship by birth, and Texas is a good place to live. I like it here. But Texas citizenship or any other earthly citizenship must never trump our heavenly citizenship. Are you at odds with a fellow Christian over differences not directly related to the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith? The world is watching, and such discord will most definitely hinder the progress of the gospel. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So this is what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Likewise, there is no room among the people of God for racial, ethnic, or class prejudice. Are there people who we think are less worthy of hearing the gospel because of their race, country of origin, religious beliefs or lack of belief, their worldview or their political beliefs? Do we say maybe to ourselves, let someone else associate with those people in order to share Christ with them? I'm just not called to that. Finally, we are engaged in a conflict that is the natural outcome of proclamation of the gospel of Christ to a fallen world. And that will result in us suffering for the sake of Christ. I'm going to mention a number of scripture references as we finish up. But for the sake of time, we won't turn to them or read them. Write them down if you want and look them up later. Notice that just as it is granted to us to believe, it is also granted to us to suffer for Christ's sake. The gospel is not a popular message in America or anywhere else. It was not popular in Paul's day. In 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24, he talks about that. It's a message of exclusivity. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. John 14, 6, Acts 4, 11 through 12. It's a clear message of dependence. We must depend on Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf and on his righteousness given to us in order for us to stand in the presence of God. Romans 3, 20 through 26 and Philippians 3, 8 through 9. This in a society that idolizes a universalism which says my beliefs are just as valid as yours and yours are just as valid as mine. And autonomy which says I can find my own way to God because he is whatever I believe him to be. 
Yet our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2.2 2 and Ephesians 6.10-13. Whenever and wherever the gospel is proclaimed, the enemy will rise up to oppose it. This opposition will result in persecution and suffering for believers. Yet we are to rejoice in such suffering, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11-12. Paul understood very well what it means to suffer for the sake of Christ in spiritual conflict. In defending his apostleship to the Corinthian church against the false apostles, Paul recounted his sufferings. They are recorded in verses 23-29 through 29 of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. So... You can turn there. We'll read that together. Paul's not bragging here, but what he's doing is the the Corinthian church had a tendency to be impressed by certain people who are referred to as super apostles. Because Paul was not an impressive individual in many senses of the word. And he didn't try to be impressive when he preached. He didn't use, as he said in 1 Corinthians, he didn't use lofty speech and wisdom. But he determined to only know Christ crucified among them. So he's, when, he, when he compares himself to the super apostles, he's not really doing it to brag, as he, as he says here. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. So you can see, Paul understood suffering for the gospel. He understood suffering for the cause of Christ in spiritual conflict. Paul knew he was at war. He was at war with spiritual forces. But in spite of this, he did not trust himself to properly declare the gospel. He didn't trust in himself to properly declare the gospel. In Ephesians 6, 19 through 20, listen to what he says. He asks his readers to pray for him, quote, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul didn't strut around in arrogance because of his great learning of the scriptures and think that he had it all together as far as sharing the gospel. Because he knew that the power came from God. He knew that in his own persuasion, he would have no effect. And so he he asked people to pray for him that he'd have the words to speak, that he would declare it boldly as he ought to. This from a man who'd been through all the things we just read, 
You'd think if anybody had a reason to be confident in their ability to, to share Christ and in their ability to communicate the gospel, it'd be somebody like Paul. But then you read this, and you see how humble the man was and how he, he knew that his total dependence was on God. So in light of what we considered these last two weeks, how should we go about communicating the gospel to our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, and other acquaintances? By being prepared to defend the gospel through reasoning, explaining, and proving. This is what we talked about last week. We can't do this if we don't know what we believe and why we believe it. Paul had great learning of the scriptures, and he definitely employed this and used it in communicating the gospel to, to the Jews. Likewise, we must know what we believe and why we believe it. We must be learning. We must be learning about where the scriptures came from, how they were put together, why we know they're reliable. We, we need to be, be able to explain why we believe what we believe. By realizing that the boldness to speak as we ought comes from the Holy Spirit and not from confidence in our own knowledge and abilities. By praying for opportunities for the words to speak and the boldness to speak them for ourselves and for fellow believers. By praying that God will open the hearts of those we communicate with. And by praying that when, we, when opposition comes, we will stand firm individually and collectively as citizens of, the king, of Christ's kingdom. We're going to take the Lord's Supper and in preparation, I'd like us to consider once again the words of Ephesians 2, 11 through 19, where Paul is talking about Gentiles and Jews being reconciled to God and to one another. So I'm going to read that again. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have, been, both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to take the elements of the, of the supper this morning, I pray that our hearts would, would be tuned in to what we have just read, that we were far off. We had no hope. We were without you. There was hostility 
between us and others. Those especially who are different from ourselves. But in Christ, by, the, by His blood, you have reconciled us to yourself and to each other. And now we're citizens of the kingdom. Lord, convict us daily when we let the kingdoms of this world that we are involved in trump the kingdom of God. When we get carried away and distracted by things that are not worthy of the kingdom of God. Lord, thank you Thank you for the inexpressible gift of Christ and the reconciliation with you that we have in him. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.